Welcome to the house of the Lord and your Christian family. I was talking with Amanda and she said, how are you doing? I said, good now. Sometimes I'm over here all by myself um, and it's awfully empty without you guys. So it's really good to see you. And many times I'm overwhelmed at the gracious goodness of God How's that for alliteration? Um, about how he's brought us all together as family. Um, different backgrounds, different genetics, different personalities, different parts of the country. But we're all gathered today because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's put us here to worship him, to learn about him. And in Sunday school in Ruth, uh, we, we were touching about the providence of God. And it's providential that we are here today in this place at this time. And I'm looking forward to see how God will use that. You could look back in your own lives and reflect on God's providence, how you were in a certain spot and a, something happened, positive or negative, that eventually God used it for good. In my life, God used the recession of 1981 to save my sorry soul and moved me from Idaho to Maine against my wishes, but I obeyed my earthly father and received a heavenly father. And I didn't know any of that during the time. I just thought, why am I moving furniture with a college degree for $4 an hour? Well, God was moving me. And I think about Joseph being sold into slavery, and at the end of it, he said, God, you, you guys meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Think about how we have a loving, heavenly Father that everything he allows to happen to us is for his glory and for ultimately our good. And you could even fast forward to your last breath When we die as believers, we're ushered into the presence of God. And you might have heard me say this before, that Gail and I are getting to the age where we talk about death and picking out burial plots. And we're going up to New Hampshire in, in three weeks to um, help bury her best friend. And I, I tell Gail, I said, I'm going to miss you, but you will not catch me ever praying after you die if if she goes before me, dear God, would you please bring back Gail for 10 more years on this horrible earth? I'm going to be jealous, just like I'm jealous of Aragorn. I'm looking forward to heaven. But until then, I love being here with you guys to worship together, to hear the voices. So let's worship together. You can look at the announcements because I've taken way too much of pastor's time. So I know you guys can read, most of you. So Naomi, if somebody can't read, read for them if they really want to know what's in the announcements. Welcome to a time of worship. Amen. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, church. I want to mention, look in your worship folder on the left-hand side. I put 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. And before we begin, 
I just want to say publicly again a word of thanks for your support through these years. Um, surprisingly, so I, I have no idea when my anniversary of this pastorate is, but uh, you guys worked that out, and I really appreciate it. It's a humbling experience to uh, be a part, to see your faces. It's quite a joy to do that and to worship Christ in this body of Christ, uh, a church that desires Christ first in everything. And it has just been a privilege to serve. And I want to thank you for the cards and the letters, the gifts, and, and just all the support through the years and really enabling me to be able to preach the word uh, at all times and and your incredible support it means a lot to me in this letter here to the church of Corinth Paul is you can feel his distress here in the beginning uh, I've just copied some of it so you, so you can just look at it in your worship folder he says he doesn't commend them when they come together can you imagine coming to church and the pastor, so I don't commend you <laughs> for gathering together for church uh, because there was a problem with them, and that was disunity, disunity because of their sin, and he addresses that in this letter to the church of Corinth. But in that, in, in the middle of it, then he, he describes what this communion time is, is about, and he says he received it from the Lord. Notice verse 23 here in the night that he was betrayed he basically took the Passover meal and two elements the bread and the fruit of the vine and demonstrated that those from that point forward would now not look back to God's general deliverance from the people from the bondage of, uh, of Egypt but instead point to a deliverance from the bondage of sin what that always pointed to and Christ then crystallizes it in this communion time that we're about to be uh, receiving. To do this, note he says it twice, do this in remembrance of me, verse 24, and then again in verse 25, when you drink the cup, do this in remembrance of me. And by doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes that is he he died for sin and he has risen from the dead he has triumphed over death and in Christ we live he does call us in the church and Corinth in particular he's focusing on but all as we gather together to remember the Lord's death and to to proclaim it that we don't want to do so in an unworthy manner now, when we open for communion here in just a moment, it, it is open. It's all who are regenerate. If you're in Christ, you will, and obedient to him, come, receive the communion. We will invite you to come forward, receive both elements, return to your seat, and then wait, and then we'll take them together. But before we do so, we don't want to do so in an unworthy manner. Notice there. Instead, we're asked to, verse 28, examine yourself. And, and how do you examine yourself? So that you won't be guilty concerning this commemoration of Christ. And that is, confess your sin. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through some sort of mantra or whatnot to carry on to bring that about. 
Jesus simply says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So he's already done all the work. And that's what this is to remind us in his life and in his death. So I'll give you a moment privately to prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And then I'll pray the blessing on the bread and the fruit of the vine. Take a moment now, prepare your heart privately where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Father, we have gathered together here to remember Christ. I pray in this time of Holy Communion, indeed, that you will bring to remembrance the glory of Christ, all that he has accomplished, the fact that we are now before him for those who have repented and believed are now stand before you clothed in the righteous garments of Christ, and those stains are not there. What a great joy. I pray this time of communion would be a great blessing for your people to truly remember Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Elders, if you'll go ahead and begin to circle, serve some people downstairs, and then Let's go ahead and have this side here stand, come receive both elements, and then return to your seat, and then we'll do the middle and then this side.
this is an object lesson of sorts. And I saw this little one here looking at this object lesson that his parents are teaching him. And you will learn, my son, one day about Christ and his life, that he's lived a perfection for you and the blood that covers all your sin. And one day we will pray that you will indeed confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But for your little ones, it's to observe and to learn what is going on. Ask your parents and learn. Because you will one day stand before God, as we all do. And there isn't going to be this question, but some people have proposed, well, why should I let you into my kingdom? And it is very simple. It is because of Christ. And that is the only reason you will stand before God in the absolute perfection of Jesus Christ. And as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance of him. Receive this bread in remembrance of Christ. You stand righteous before God, clothed only in the righteousness of Christ, but you may ha be thinking about stained garments that you wear now. But there is something that can wash that completely away. What can wash away my sin? Children, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The accuser of the brethren will have nothing to say because they will all be atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Receive this in remembrance of him. Well, traditionally, we do sing a hymn when we finish communion, and today we'll have three to sing. As Blake comes to lead us, I hope in great joy We'll be able to sing the mighty power of God. Love then to tell that story and find our refuge in Christ and Christ alone. Let's stand and sing as Blake leads. Let's us. turn to number 48 in our hymn books. Number 48, I sing the mighty power of God. The Amen. depths of his earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. Psalm 95, 4. Number 48.
flip to the back of our hymn book and go to 626. 626, I love to tell the story. With my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 89, 1. 626. singing. Let's turn to number 452. Hiding in thee, rescue me from my enemies, O Lord, for I hide myself in you. Psalm 
be seated. Good morning, beloved church. Please turn with me to Psalm 107. The Psalms are subdivided into five books. Today we'll be reading the first Psalm of the final book, Book 5, Psalm 107. You can find it on pages 506 and 507 of your pew, of your pew Bibles. <clears throat> A verse that I would like to draw your attention to, we'll hear it repeated four times today. It says this, Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. <clears throat> Our greatest trouble as human beings is sin. We deserve God's judgment and his wrath on sin. It is a righteous judgment. But if we cry out to him, he will deliver us from our distress. <clears throat> if you've never done this, repent of your sins now and believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. No one knows the day of their death or the time of the Lord's return. When either of these two events occur, the opportunity to cry out to Yahweh will be over. I hope that it's not distracting that I'm saying Yahweh instead of Lord. To be perfectly honest with you, I just love to say his name. Let's read in Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. 
Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of Yahweh. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would know the steadfast love of Yahweh. I pray that we would keep this glorious love at the forefront of our minds always. Father, when we encounter circumstances that cause us distress, that cause us difficulty, help us to remember to cry out to you. And help us to remember that even though you may not remove the circumstance immediately, that we can know for certain that ultimately it will work out for your glory and our good. Please help us all the time by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We need your help all the time. Please help us. <clears throat> I pray that you would use the offerings gathered today to further your kingdom. I pray that you would help the faith of your people, Father. Help us to trust in you for everything that we need. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
let's stand once more and take our hymn books and turn to number 532. We'll sing Higher Ground. Let's all sing together verse 1, women only on verse 2, men only on verse 3, and then we'll come together on verse 4. All choruses will be sung to the whole congregation. 532, Higher Ground. I'm pressing home. Blake, Amber, and congregation. Indeed, I hope you're standing on that higher ground, which is the firm foundation and rock of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to conclude the Gospel of John with final testimonies. If I can get through it, we'll see. That's my intention. John chapter 21, as this book concludes... I've enjoyed going through the Gospel of John. I hope you have enjoyed it half as much as I have. It's a glorious book. In preparation for weeks to come, we'll be looking at the book of Hebrews in the future if you want to get started reading that. For now, this Gospel of John will come to your mind, no doubt, in days to come in which you might be able to minister your, to yourself and to others as you think of these incredible truths. I love the way the Gospel of John opened with the prologue, if you will. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him is life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. What a great truth that is just to begin really at the beginning with Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. The theme John records then in this gospel, as he begins on that note, it points to one singular thing, as we've repeated on more than one occasion, found in chapter 20. (coughs) In verse 30, there are many other signs, that is, proofs and demonstrations of miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these things are written for a purpose. And what is that purpose? So that you might indeed believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why is it important to believe that? That you might have life in his name. That's all that ultimately matters. That you would have life in Christ. Now we're going to look at the close, which is often called the epilogue of the book in chapter 21. As we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, this particular chapter, it it does begin and focus with Peter, this apostle who failed, denied Christ three times, but he's going to be restored to ministry and he demonstrates his, his repentance. And now he doesn't feel like he can accomplish anything But Christ tells him that he will. In fact, he calls them to tend his sheep. The faithful and true here, this fallen disciple, will be restored by none other than Jesus Christ. He's humbled, but he can only hold on to one thing, that would be Peter, as he's dialoguing with Jesus, in the midst of it, he knows that in his heart, though not perfectly, he loves Christ. And in fact, in these three questions that Christ asks him, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? He will say, you know that I love you. When all else fails in your life, remember the love of Christ never fails. Because love, true and genuine love, cannot fail. See 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. And so it is with this that even a fumbling disciple, if you will, who will be called to a great ministry, does fail in these times in which you would think it would be an easy challenge for him. He hangs on to his love of Christ, which won't fail, and he has hope, even in the midst of it. And his hope is in Christ, as he says, you know. I like the way that Paul puts this to the church at Rome in Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame 
because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what we're talking about. Not some sort of made-up or manufactured affections for Christ, but this is a supernatural regeneration of the heart. And now there's something inside that is different. Yes, you may stumble, you may fall, but there is something that causes you go back to repentance and faith and to be restored and to strengthen the other brethren. This then puts us with great hope for those that are in Christ Jesus and not to shame. Shame would be destruction. Those that are in Christ have life. Hope, by the way, from a biblical perspective here, is not how we often think of hope in the idea of, I hope this will happen, wishful thinking. But from a biblical perspective, this hope is based on the integrity of the one who makes the promise that is God. So in that sense, that hope in Christ is of absolute certainty. It is the certainty of a sovereign God who works everything according to the counsel of his will. He will accomplish what he purposes. It will ultimately, as Jeremy said, be for his glory, which indeed is our good. So in that we have hope. Hope that is rooted ultimately in the moral character of God. It is absolutely true because he is absolutely true. It is absolutely perfect because he is absolutely perfect. It is absolutely right and righteous then by definition. That is the hope of the believer, a hope in God. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Yes, we can, when we look in prospectively of ourselves, find great discouragement. But the call is to cast your eyes on Christ. And this morning, I really want you to focus on <clears throat> here in this Gospel of John, some final witnesses testimonies, some words then that are put together here in this epilogue. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 19 first, and then I'll read the text of verse 20. But notice um, in verse 19, Jesus restores Peter to ministry, right, through this dialogue with him. And then he tells him he needs to do something that is serve in ministry. And he uses the phraseology analogy of sheep and a flock. He says, tend to my sheep, feed my flock. Same concept. That's his ministry. He also mentions, notice verse 19, that he's going to, to die a death of a martyr. He's going to sacrifice. And his word to him is simply this, 
follow me. Submit to the sovereign Lord and follow me. That's where we pick up here in verse 20. Peter's just been restored to ministry. He's been, been told to serve in a certain way, in the way he has been called to shepherd the flock as an under-shepherd of Christ. He's been told the direction of his ministry, which most of us wouldn't know, but he is told by Christ that he indeed would suffer and die as a martyr, but he is to submit to Christ in the meantime and follow him. So here we have verse 20 in chapter 21. Peter then turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die, yet Jesus didn't say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remained until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did for every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. Let us pray. Father, I do pray <coughs> we would gain from what is written a word, a testimony, truth, that if you have granted to us in this very day to hear and heed Christ. Grant it this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the way I'd organize this last little section here is to look at it as three testimonies or final words that are given. You have Peter in verse 20, and then you have John's testimony, and then ultimately a testimony from Jesus or about Jesus here as it closed down. The first here note is Peter's testimony. And I would categorize it as getting sidetracked. <laughs> he, he's moving from the main point or subject that has been given him. What's the main subject that Peter should have? And that Peter, that Jesus does reaffirm to him, it is that he is to, notice verse 19, follow him. He just went through this whole restoration back to ministry, and he gives them a word in how to proceed, and that is when you proceed, as you proceed, what? Put your mind and your focus and your attention on Christ. That is, follow me, Jesus says. Notice verse 20. It's, the image is clear. So Peter turned. <laughs> You, you get it? Jesus says, follow me. And Peter does what? 
He stops following him. He turns. He's looking over at John. Jesus said to, to look at me, to follow me. The imagery, I think, is, is clear. He's not following Jesus here at this moment. Instead, he turns and notices John. And he asked then Jesus this question, Lord, what about this man? And then Jesus gives him a mild rebuke in verse 22. It is a rebuke. And he, he just tells him, well, if it's my will that he's around till I come back, that is, till Christ comes to gather his own into the kingdom, what, what does that matter? He repeats the command once more in verse 22. Do you notice? You follow me. This is the call of not just that disciple. I would have said it applies to all disciples. What's your calling? Pick up your cross and follow Christ. That, that's what it is. Now, beloved, why would this be recorded? Because this is what the Holy Spirit would inspire John to record. And it is for our benefit. You can learn two main ways. One, you can learn experientially. The other way is vicariously. I choose the latter <laughs> when I can. In other words, you, you can make that mistake or you can learn from somebody else's mistake. I grew up in the in a, in a really rough environment at home. And I had three siblings that were always getting into all kinds of evil. I learned rather quickly I wasn't to follow them <laughs> because their track was leading towards the path of death and destruction, two of which literally died. And the third is incarcerated for the rest of his life. And I remember early on, particularly, I don't know if I became aware of this after I started following Christ, I think so, but, but, it, but even prior to that, it was like, wh why would you want to do those kinds of things and destroy yourself? You can learn a lot from Peter and from his mistakes and from others, and in fact, God does use that in his life to strengthen the brothers, how would it strengthen them? Well, that's not the route to go. <laughs> At first glance, though, if you're reading through here, you might think, well, Wayne, you're making too much of that. Isn't that an innocent enough question for him to say, what about this man? I mean, after all, they were close friends. Uh, they were ministry partners together early on. Um, they were very close. But given the response here in, in the text and how Jesus responds to him here, I, I think we, we have to at least say it's, it's implied, if not clearly stated, that this is more than just a casual comment. Peter has already declared that Christ knows all things. That's his basis for his love. Well, you know that I love you, right? Jesus knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. We may not even be fully aware of our motives, but Christ is always fully aware 
He knows. I do try to give people the benefit of the doubt because I don't know people's motives. I know what their actions are, and maybe they, they intended to do something harmful, and maybe they didn't, but it doesn't matter. I don't know really what their, their motives are. Jesus knows. He doesn't need to give the benefit of the doubt. He knows absolutely what someone's motives are. And here, I think his motive is he is distracted and not following Christ, looking to John. And notice here what, P- what Jesus says. He emphasizes back to his sovereign will. If it is my will, what is that to you? In other words, we pray, don't we, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's done perfectly in, in that sense in heaven. But we're praying that it may be done on earth and it may not come about the way we would imagine it. I mean, think about Peter and what Jesus told him in this revelation about his own death that he would die a horrific death, a death on the cross. But that was not the will of Christ for John. Neither was it Christ's desire to reveal to Peter what John's mission would be. We we know what has happened with John. He, He continued to live. He outlived all the other disciples. All the others were martyred. John, church history tells us they they tried to kill him and boil him in oil, but he got away. Apparently he had pretty thick skin, which is helpful. (laughs) Any case, John was tortured. He was in prison. He was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. And oh, I know, God has a purpose for him. One of them was to give us the final revelation of Jesus Christ. And he also wrote some helpful letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as we call them. In hindsight, we know his will for John to some degree. But Peter doesn't know it, and it isn't really Peter's business. Peter's business needs to be to follow Christ, and Jesus repeats that, you follow me. And that's the duty of all disciples, all Christians. You, if you're in Christ, follow him. In the body of Christ, as Christ has built the church, He has put together various people within the body to function in ways that are necessary for him to accomplish what? His will, not ours. And it's quite a bit different in many respects how the ministry of Peter and how the ministry of John will work out. But it isn't because of their ingenuity. It isn't because of how their dispositions were, it is because of the direct will of Jesus Christ for his purposes, and we don't even know all of them, right? We we couldn't even uh, attempt to grasp all of it other than to put it in this category, it is for his glory. 1 Corinthians 12, I invite you to turn there to see how this would apply to the body of Christ. 
1 Corinthians 12. And I'm going to walk through this text quite a bit. And we'll see if I can wrap this up. But I think in context it helps us to explore, to recognize the uniqueness in here, John and Peter, but for all disciples that Christ would call to be a part of the body of Christ. That analogy is being used. Christ's will will be done, but it's unique and different for each person. And to the church at Corinth, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit then for the common good. You get it three different ways here. The varieties of, of, of services, activities, gifts. We call these spiritual gifts. Gifts to do what? To serve Christ. To serve where? Within the body of Christ. Within what we would call the church. And all of it is done for the common good. And it is, it is granted him. Now, in 1 Corinthians, it is the early church. So they were given some unique gifts that, again, remember, it's, it's given the manifestation for the common good. And it is varieties. It isn't saying that all of these would continue, but these have a purpose in time, just like the, the apostles' office was given for a specific period of time for his purposes. It, it mentions these gifts and enumerates them through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge according to the Spirit, that's capital S, Holy Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gift of healings by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, the various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. So he's itemizing some of the spiritual gifts within that body of Corinth, for example. But his point is, verse 11 all of these, note here, are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Talking about the unity within the church, the gifts that are given to those that are in the church at the appropriate time and place in both history and geography. All of these are given by the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He apportions to each one individually as he will. Do you see the relationship when Peter is asking about John and he says, it is my will, Christ says. And here are the same. It is my will. Every member, every disciple, every Christian is uniquely gifted by God. According to his will, he apportions as his will. And he has a purpose in it. It's the bigger picture. And that's where he addresses in verse 12 that these diverse and unique gifts at different times and places 
expressed in different ways would function in a united way for the body of Christ. And he uses the analogy, Paul does, of a body. Just as the, and think here, human body is one and has many members, verse 12, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. That's what unifies a church. Not, not anything else. It isn't our culture. It isn't our ethnicity. It isn't our economic status or whatever else you want to put together. What unifies us is that we are all one in Christ and one spirit and gifted in a unique way. He'll say that in verse 13. We are in one spirit, baptized into one body. This is talking about the spiritual union with Christ and using that term baptized, which just simply means immersed. He's not talking about the, the ceremony in which we replicate that spiritual union with Christ. That's, that's what this does. This is a ceremony of baptism, which expresses that, just like this is a ceremony that remembers Christ's life and atonement in the communion. But we are then united together, and notice how he, he brings up the, the disparity of different people, Jews or Greeks. This is two different ends of the spectrum. Slaves are free, right? We, we are then made to drink of one spirit. Well, that's a... That's, that's in a great, incredible peace plan, isn't it? The peace of God in Christ Jesus, which then on that basis will unite us together. Into what? Into, and there's a purpose for it. Individually, that brings us into one body. Verse 14. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. And he uses this common illustration. I was thinking about skipping over this because you've heard it, but you might want to just, let's I think we should follow the text. It's, it's a memorable one. I'm sure you've heard it before, but let's remind it. He, he's giving this analogy and illustration of the body and really kind of being sarcastic in a way. Think of the human body. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Would that make it any less part of the body? You know the answer. Well, what if the ear should say? Because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as a note here, God has arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts at one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that even seem to be weaker are indispensable. You ever stub your little toe? You know, what's a little toe for? To stub? <laughs> and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, 
which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. That's the analogy and that's the illustration you have to drive home in your mind. The body. Giving greater honor to the part that lacked it so that there may be no division in the body. Now he's pointing back to the what? The body of Christ, right? You, you, you say this would be ridiculous for your human body to act this way. It would be ridiculous for the body of Christ to act this way, as if we didn't need one another, if we weren't truly members of one another and had then what? The same care for one another. How is that care expressed? Well, if one member suffers, verse 26, well, we all suffer together. It, it, it hurts to see somebody else hurt, just like it would hurt if you had a part of your body hurt, right? Here's another one. If, if, if um, a, one member is, is honored, then we all rejoice together. It's not like, Oh, well, that one got all this goodness, and, and, and I, I, I get nothing. I, I, I'm over here suffering, and they're over there just, you know, I enjoying great blessings and triumph. W what about me? See, that, that's the imagery he's using with Peter as well. Well, 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 well what about that guy? J John's going to get all the notoriety, save the boiling oil part. But anyway, he, he's going to get everything going to go for him he's going to get a vision of heaven he gets to record the very words of christ he gets to live to be an old man and serve in the church and peter has to die relatively young in comparison it's it's different and so but what what is the call though in the body then then for you to have empathy for those that have great burdens and to the degree help them in the burden as you suffer together. But on the other thing is to rejoice for those that have great blessings. Because all of it is from God and he has a purpose in it all. We trust him for it. It is according to what? His will. And then he'll go on and particularly talk about the offices that God has appointed. Verse 28. Apostles, prophets, teachers. All these various gifts. He said, but are all apostles, verse 29? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? No. That's the rhetorical answer. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. And then he ends with this. I'll tell you what. You should really desire the higher gifts. And he'll explain that in the next chapter. You've heard of 1 Corinthians 13. What's higher? Love. Because it never ends. True and genuine love never fails. Some of these things are for just time and purpose in a particular place and setting. doesn't mean if you have a particular gift that that will be exercised precisely that way all the time. Sometimes it changes. Your own physical body changes. Things change. And same within the church. But, but the point is that love will not, and that's excellent. That's what you would hold to, so that ultimately your 
calling then is to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do to his glory means you don't bring reproach on God. In that sense, and it sounds kind of crass, I don't know any better way to put it, but you, you make God look good, okay? I, I, that may sound crass way to do it, it say it. I, if you've got a better way to phrase this, let me know, but not now. Doing everything to God's glory means that then, then God is not, his name isn't brought down. It's that someone can see how you behave and engage and say, wow, that is, must be a, an example, imperfectly done, but of Christ. Because it comes from him. Don't bring reproach on God's name. John and Peter were called to completely different ministries and you might want one or the other. If I had a choice, I don't think I'd be so thrilled about Peter's. How would you like to suffer like that on a cross? But this is what God had called him to. Different purposes for God's will to be done. Our goal, beloved, isn't to be famous. It's to be faithful. This, back to our text, then, a lot of people just don't get it either. You can say this sometimes, and this is where I think you need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to really get what is being communicated. Because many, even at that time, as John notes in verse 23 of our text, that a rumor goes abroad, kind of a misinterpretation of what Christ said that happens a lot, that John wasn't going to die, but that's not what he said. He said, if it is my will, then to remain, then he wouldn't. But he didn't say that's what he said, if. Let's look at another testimony, and this would be of John's. And that's found in verse 24. This disciple, he's bearing this witness, his testimony is true. This disciple, through the course of the Gospel of John, the apostle refers to him that way. And notice in our text, go back to verse 20, he describes himself as the one who leaned back against him, that's Jesus, during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? There's a lot of discussion as to why, but I think it's straightforward. John is humbled by the fact that Jesus would bother with him in the first place. Are you? I know I am. John didn't come from good stock. He was called a son of thunder. We think about Peter and some of the others who are a little rough, but John was just as rough. 
we think of him as the apostle of love. It's because the love of God poured in his heart that was expressed that overcome his natural tendency to be sharp and rough. And here he is in a, this is the one who's writing this gospel. This is, this is John, an old man now. He has a genuine and personal relationship with God incarnate. Can you imagine? And to speak in such a way, leaning on his breast at supper, this was um, culturally a thing which would say, uh, I'm sitting at the head table with the chief guy in charge right next to him. We culturally do things differently, right, at different times. But this would have been a very close relationship. Clearly, the inner circle, an intimate friend. Think of, this is not only the king or president or whoever, but, but this is my, my best friend. John freely conversed with Jesus. And imagine the impact this makes on him as he reflects back probably 50 years at this point when he's writing this gospel, of what it was like to be with Jesus. Have you ever been in, in the presence of somebody who had an important office or was thought of as an important person? It can be quite humbling. I remember as a teenager, I stood in a, in a line, a little rope line, and there wasn't very many people there. It was the 4th of July, and we just finished watching the fireworks being shot off. If if I remember right, it was the Washington Monument, and I was at the back of the White House. You know that little door at the bottom? And they walk out that and get on a helicopter? Everybody was ushered out but me and a few other people, some mostly reporters. And here I am, a little boy, and out walks the President of the United States. He sought me out and grabbed my hand and shook it. Now, I didn't know him personally. And what I learned about him, I don't think I was all that interested in his economic programs, but that's another story. But I did shake the hand of the sitting president as a young man. And that was quite impressive. But I re- and he talked to me, but I really didn't talk to him. John is reflecting on his relationship, not with a president, not with somebody important, not a king, but the king of kings and the Lord of glory, God incarnate. He has a personal relationship, and that's his emphasis w- in which he is, is looking back and writing about this. This is the, the final gospel witness of this king of glory, and he must tell us about that king. John says, this is the disciple, verse 24. He is the one that is bearing witness. You wouldn't miss that. If you were in the presence of somebody that was prominent, even if it was just a brief moment, but he spent years with Christ in the close inner circle. John was a 
an eyewitness. He writes this gospel, and he says this gospel is true. It was John, you remember, just briefly, I'll tell you, that he and Peter and James were led to a high mountain by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was transfigured before them. His face was bright as the sun. His clothes became white light. This is John, the apostle. He was there. He saw it. And then he hears audibly a voice from heaven, This is my son. Their, their focus was on other things. And God the Father drew the attention to the Son. That's this John who witnessed. This is the John, remember we just finished the prior section. He's at the foot of the cross. All the other disciples gone. But John is there. And Jesus looking down from the cross. God incarnate looking down. And who does he appoint to take care of widow Mary none other than John and he says John behold your mother and to Mary behold your son that's how close he was you know how close he was he ran to the tomb with Peter on that resurrection morning he ran so fast younger than Peter he got there first and he saw Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul, should I say, (coughs) talked about the key people in the church in the early days to the church of Galatia. You'll find it in Galatia chapter 2. It was Peter and John and James. He says they functioned as pillars of the church. That's who is writing. So John here is writing this authoritative gospel, and then he affirms, it's me, it's me who said this. Could you imagine the most uh, revered, revered person, whatever, standing before you and saying, it's me who's telling you this witness? I'll read it for you from 1 John chapter 1. He describes in his first epistle that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifested and we have seen it and testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you would have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John proves to be the most reliable witness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was there at the very beginning, and he was there at the very end. John then writes this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and his testimony is true. There's not a lot of truth out there. But one thing you can be assured of is the truth that you have 
right before you and specifically in context here, this gospel, look at Christ, he is the truth. Peter will say in his epistle, looking back on this, including that transfiguration event that he witnessed along with John, and he said, you know what? In 2 Peter chapter 1, he said, we have something even more certain than that. What is it? This prophetic word which you should pay attention to. Look at it as a lamp that shines in the dark until the morning star rises in your heart. This testimony, John says then, all of it is absolutely true. One final testimony, and that's the testimony of Christ, back to our text in verse 25. It simply says there's many other things that Jesus did. That's a given, and this is a bit hyperbole to say that well, the world itself couldn't contain the books to be written. I suppose if you try to write out everything we said, it would take a lot, or everything we did. Okay, so I'll, I'll grant that. I everything that Jesus did is not recorded. There are a lot of fanciful stories that are not inspired, that are not true. We call them apocryphal stories. They... they are fanciful stories that are written about Jesus that are not contained here in the canon of Scripture. They don't really have any benefit in advancing the truth about Jesus. You want to know the truth about Jesus? Look no further than this book. And most notably here before us, the Gospel of John. John has already made clear that what he has written is selective. In chapter 20, verse 30, as we already read, there were many other signs that Jesus did. Signs means miracles that aren't in this book, the one he's writing, the Gospel of John. He writes about seven main signs. But he's selective because these things are written that you would believe. That is what is most essential, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would know he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, he is the Deliverer, and that Deliverer happens to be God incarnate. That's what the Son of God means. And why does it matter? Because putting your faith in Christ means that you're going to have life in his name. So he's already kind of said that in the pre-conclusion, really, I would say, thematic statement in chapter 20. But this closes out this book with this thought, to some degree, written again. <coughs> and I have to ponder why. And I think at least two, at least two that I'll mention. And the first one to note that what is written here is sufficient. Don't look for another source. All scripture, that's the canon of scripture, is breathed out by God. We call that inspiration. Literally, it would be expiration that is out of the very mouth of God. That's what this word is. So, so it's, a, it's a 
infallible source. It is what God has said. God, who is always true, who is always right, has said it. That's what this writing is, Scripture. And therefore, because of that, it, and it absolutely is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It is absolutely sufficient for that, that you might be complete and equipped. This, this is why we spend so much time going through the Scriptures and teaching the Scriptures. Not in a general sense, but probably more specifically. Because we, I don't want you to necessarily hear my words. I want you to look at the very words of Christ in the Scriptures and recognize what they are. Understand them, that you might be complete. Complete in the sense of being mature, growing in grace in the knowledge, and therefore equipped to do every good work, that is, the work that God has called you to do in Christ Jesus in life and specifically within the church. I think there's another reason, at least that comes to my mind, too, not only the sufficiency of Scripture, but the profundity. What has been said here in this text of John as he closes out is profound. These selection of these events and these words that are given, they're essential for the believer. They're sufficient for us, but they are so profound and inexhaustible that we could never mine the depth of truth that is here. Whatever you see, there's more. When you scratch the surface, you, you, you have more to go. And when you dig to the depths of that, that you're equipped to do, can I tell you what? There is more about Christ. You, you will find it in the revelation of his word. But, but, but don't think that your surface understanding has gotten it there. Think of a, of a child who, who matures as we, as we train them and teach them. We might teach them about science or something like that, right? A subject. Well, then, as they grow older, we can teach them other facts about science and and deeper truths about it, and some nuance, and some variables, and, and so forth. And it becomes increasingly complex, or, or like math. Here's our math teacher here. He, I can't hold a candle to your understanding of math. But, but I would say that you would say there's so much more beyond that, because God has created all of that. And it is to, to stop and think about how profound and inexhaustible God is. And specifically, Jesus Christ is. Most of us know John 3.16. Simple, isn't it? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, we could preach on that for a year and we would never exhaust it. 
I, I, I'm tempted to go on now. <laughs> I understand why the Puritans preached for three hours on a single word. Because they dug deep. This truth that's in this gospel is sufficient, but it's inexhaustible, and I commend it to you. Take this with your life forward. We'll refer back a time or two. I'll miss the Gospel of John because I've sure enjoyed spending time on Jesus' breast and learning from him and his word. I have gotten the most out of our journey through John because you know what I give you each week? I just give you a little thimble because that's all I can do as a, as a man. But there's an inexhaustible supply. I like the way the hymn writer composed. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though it was stretched from sky to sky. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would grant us what we need to hear and heed from Christ today and truly follow him. I pray this in Christ's name. Beloved, I'll give you a moment now to think on these things. Respond to Christ the way he has spoken to you. If you've been awakened to the beauty and love of God in Christ Jesus, confess him as Lord even now. Take a moment privately where you're at and then we'll close. Father, I do pray that we indeed would glorify you in all we do by following Christ and Christ alone. I pray in his name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 524 in our hymnals. 524, seek ye first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be 
provided, Matthew Gracious Father, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Father, we just pray now that you would help us to follow it diligently with all our heart. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.